Hello and welcome to the Philanthropy Australia podcast. I'm Nick Richardson and my guest today is Sarah Hosking, who is CEO of the National Breast Cancer Foundation and currently a non-executive board director of the Australian Communities Foundation. She was awarded the 2020 Telstra Businesswoman of the Year Award in New South Wales for Purpose and Social Enterprise. She's a clinician and researcher and has spent 25 years in academia, most latterly as a professor in both ophthalmology and optometry in institutions in Australia, the UK and China. She's an experienced CEO and non-executive director, having held a number of roles in health, research and education. We began talking about the recent award and explored the changes that organisations, not-for-profit sector, have had to deal with through the course of the COVID-19 pandemic. Let's look at that, the Telstra Award. More importantly, does it give you an opportunity to leverage off it to do other things? I think it's interesting that an organisation like Telstra puts so much energy and effort into a program like that, and there is an awful lot to it. I think it's really good for our sector to have a role in that, and I think it's interesting that they've chosen to, when you are actually you know, invited to apply within it, there's sort of two levels. So you can be the sort of the rising star or somebody who's been around for a while that's done a few different things. So I, I believe I unfortunately come into the latter category. <laughs> I'm not really a rising star. Anyway, never mind. <laughs> and um, so I think it's really, it's really good, though, that they recognize the role played by not-for-profits. And it's good to have a sort of contemporary business recognition for the way we run our businesses. So I think it's really good for the sector per se. I think it's good for the individual organizations associated with the winners across the board. So it's great for NBCF. It's also good for my former employers as well that, you know, I've kind of learned through and with them. So I think that there's, there's a lot of kind of close to home wins as well as that broader view for the sector overall. So I'd certainly encourage um, other not-for-profit CEOs and other staff from not-for-profits to to participate. I think it's a really good thing to be part of. I think, you know, uh, Nick, we've had a situation probably for a decade or two where there's this sort of feeling that not-for-profits are probably run in a bit of an old-fashioned way and we're not contemporary, we're not governance-focused, we're probably not financially literate. There's all sorts of myths, I think, and you get sometimes the great white heroes that think they can come in and show us how to do it properly because we, we don't really know. And I think this is a really great way of showing that actually, you know, we, we really do know what we're doing and the sector is actually run in a very thorough governance-focused way. And I think that's really positive as well. So I think there's lots of wins for me personally, maybe, but broader than that, I think for the organisations in and around us and for our sector interesting point there you make in terms of in a sense what we're talking about a professionalization of the sector you know mm. that greater rigor and commitment to governance and all of that certainly going to come under renewed pressure and scrutiny in the current health crisis isn't it yeah i think potentially but also i think you know there's opportunity for some areas of the sector to come up as real winners in this you know that we've been proactive and you know we've handled this in a really professional way a lot of a lot of organizations and I I think ours is one have kind of gone in early been very decisive very prescriptive 
work really well with their teams and and sort of you know are coming out the other side and are now focused on what's going to happen next so mm. it's not I don't think it's all doom and gloom at all I think that you know my business and um, we've we've surveyed our business to see how staff are doing our survey results have been very very high for a while now but that they've never been higher than they are through coronavirus so you I'll put st- that down too that's a great question the answer I want to give you is that uh, it's great management and great leadership team and the CEO and maybe there's a little bit of, of good stuff in there too but, but, I, but I, maybe it has to be offset by perhaps uh, anxiety and expectation that people probably went into coronavirus expecting the worst and mm. so anything better than the worst is a win and so mm. staff have a sense of relief about the fact that they've not been you know furloughed they they haven't had their pay cut you know we've we've been able to retain our our staff really to protect our culture and protect our business as we come out the other side so i think that it's very positive in many ways and i think staff are they went to the early weeks I'm constantly expecting a phone call saying, you know, well, I know you said you could stay, but I've changed my mind, you're out. And they're all still there. So, mm-hmm. And they're all very happy to be there. And they're all very diligent. And they're all very focused on doing a great job. And I think I only speak for my staff. My staff are in a really good place. And we're getting engagement scores in the high 90s. And, you know, wow. and, and mm-hmm. feedback on our communication with them through this coronavirus is 100%. from staff they're very happy with the way that we've managed it and I think we've learned a lot about ourselves and we are doing things differently than we did six months ago before we come to that I read that that you're more than a glass half full person you're a glass overflowing kind of person (laughs) in terms of your positivity have there been times in the past few months where you thought oh dear I'm not sure where this is going and how it's going to end no, uh, well, I, I'm, I'm not sure where it's going and where it's going to end. And that is, I've still got my heart, my glass uh, running over. I, I, <laughs> I think it's because I feel as though if you focus on your best endeavours and you communicate them openly and honestly, that, you know, you can still get to a really good place. So I have conversations with my staff where I will say, I realize that, you know, this is very complicated. We, you know, we've got a virus here that nobody understands. None of us, the board or any of us have ever been through a pandemic before, mm. et cetera, et cetera. We know that we, you want to know when we're going back to work. And we know that you want to know what that's going to look like, which is fair enough. And I can tell you that we don't know the answer to either of those questions right now. But I can tell you that this is how we're thinking about it. These are the considerations that are on our mind. So I've gone back to the staff and said, right, we've made a decision. We won't go back to the office before the 20th of July. That doesn't mean we're going back on the 20th of July. It means we're not going back before the 20th of July. Mm -hmm. I'll come back to you later with when Mm -hmm. we might come Mm -hmm. back. It Mm -hmm. might be the 20th of July, but it might not. So so I'm focusing with them on what I can tell them. That's about being honest and pragmatic and straightforward. And it's not pretending anything. And I certainly don't pretend to have all the answers. We give it due consideration. We hear their viewpoints, given lots of consideration to, you know, what they would like a return to work to look like, regardless of the timing, you know, how much time in the mm. office, get to work from home, these sorts of things. They're very happy to, to have those conversations with us. And they feel they're included on the journey. And I think that's as honest as I can be right now. And I think it would be 
you know, it would be mythological for me to suggest that I could, I've got a crystal ball, I can see where this is headed. I've got some hunches, I've got some concerns, I've got some things I feel good about. The part of me that has a cup that's at least half full, definitely of the view that if we are forward focused, open to new ideas and suggestions and open with the staff about what we're thinking as we go along, that we will get a good result. You've spoken a lot in the past about the importance of culture and you've already mentioned it once in this conversation now. Do you feel this has tested the the cultural resilience of your organisation? Where we are with culture, we've transitioned our culture substantially in the last four years. We've gone from having, you know, high staff turnover and some cultural challenges being very siloed. Over the last four years, we've transitioned to a much more unified workforce. Everyone's very much, you know, 100% alignment to mission, very engaged and positive workforce. And I've said a few times how, how very glad I am that if I had to go through coronavirus pandemic with anyone, it was with the current cohort of staff wow. because they are in a really great place. And I suppose the test is, I think they're in a great place. Previous surveys suggest that they're in a, a great place and an award-winning place. The question is, when we really, really challenge that with a pandemic and all that comes with that, does it prove to be true? And it really has. And I think that's where surveying during the pandemic at the moment, we've just done this survey, as I, as I said, and I think doing the survey now has, on reflection, I feel that most people will either find their surveys are better or they'll find their worse, but probably won't find they're where they were before. And I think if people feel that they're being treated fairly, openly, honestly, and supported as best we can, and whether that's financial or in communication or anything else, they show their appreciation. And as I say, that's, that's certainly proven to be the case for us. So you mentioned earlier about that you've made some changes in terms of how you do things. Are you at liberty to talk about what that looks like and having already a sense of what impact they're having? Yes, I think, you know, it's really simple things, Nick, actually. It's, for me, it's been about what we don't have in this work-from-home environment that we have at the moment is, is that the coffee room chats and the mm. sort of, you're just looking at the expression on somebody's face that you perhaps don't work with day-to-day, but you see the expression on their face that something's up there or you need to have a conversation. Mm. You don't read the body language in the same way when you're all sitting at home. And mm. so you have to manufacture that. And for that, it's been more frequent communication that's Mm. really key from me and between members of the teams uh, elsewhere in the business so much more frequent communication and probably communication at a level which is a bit more frank and open than we would otherwise feel was entirely necessary so I'm prepared to share thoughts and ideas at an earlier stage than I perhaps otherwise would have done because I really need to bring the team on the journey in a way that is harder to do when you're all at home and it's hard for me to read if there are individuals out there who've got some uncertainty I can't mm. see it in the expressions on their faces necessarily because mm. I'm not seeing them in the same way so a lot more communication and that's had its challenges too I think sometimes you know I've really felt I think I'm due to have a chat with the staff and I want to talk to them about a few things and I really want that to feel like a relaxed dialogue and there's probably a bit a few too many people on a zoom call for a relaxed dialogue so the danger is it ends up looking like a poor man's queen's speech but (laughs) I'm working on my methodology (laughs) you know and I've also sort of suggested passing the baton around the leadership team and things but the feedback is you know we know that you're sitting there on your own talking to yourself but we really love it and we want you to keep doing it so 
I'll keep doing it for as long as they'll listen. Great opportunities for even our suggestions box has gone digital. So uh, they're oh, still sending right. and thoughts and, you know, and I can address those directly with staff. So they feel as though they know what's going on because they do. And they know as much as I do, really. And I think that's really, really important at this time. Looking outwards on the community in terms of its capacity and preparedness to give, what do you see out there in terms of how that dynamic has changed or is changing? I think for us, fundraising streams have had to be rewritten to a large extent. And what I'm tending to see is there's been a a bit of a hiatus, which was a period of reflection where I think people are looking at their businesses and their personal finances to really see what the impact of this the economic impact of this virus is going to on them personally or on their businesses. So they've taken some time to do that. So there's perhaps been some delay. And that's been followed by, for us, really a kind of moment of clarity where some businesses have said, we were really keen to do this, but right now we don't think we can, often because they're not sure where they're going to be. Not so much now and not even three months time, but in six or 12 months time, what's the impact on their business going to be? They seem to be more concerned about that. And so we've tended to find that the ones who really can't have sort of said, look, you know, just right now, this isn't the time we're going to step aside. Mm -hmm. But equally, we have had some really, really positive feedback from private donors, from trusts and foundations that we work with and others as well and corporates as well, where they've said, you know what, we wouldn't normally do this, but we're going to do this. And so some organisations, some new individuals, new organisations have really stepped into the centre of our discussions and are actually really keen to support us. I kind of look forward with my cup at least half full again, but I look forward a year or three, we'll say, and I won't try and predict the window, at a time when some of those that have set step aside and said, well, we just can't do it at the moment, they may come back. But actually, we've used this time to build new relationships as well that we continue to build on. So I think in the medium term, we could see some real benefit to the energy that's gone into trying to redistribute our income streams at this time. So it's been quite interesting. In the short term, do you feel you've lost a little bit of ground or you can't afford to play that game? I think, um, well, if, if by losing ground, we're talking about, you know, our income being down, for sure. You know, we're not exempt from that. Of course, our income's down. We were financially well managed beforehand. So we've got the resources and the means to protect ourselves through this time. We've done some interesting things with our research investment, which I think help to keep us really relevant, relevant through COVID and relevant in medical research and breast cancer research. I think that we've maintained that relevance, but we're doing a little differently this time because of our income constraints. My little test, if you like, is what would annual report for this year and next year look like compared to the previous two years? And mm. can we show the same? Or will we be showing that we're as relevant and impactful in this year and next? And I believe we will. I believe that we mm. will be able to show similar impact and investment in research in particular, despite COVID but by doing it a little bit differently. And of course, you launched the campaign Zero Deaths by 2030 some months ago, pre-COVID. Do you feel in some ways that a little bit of traction has been lost by the health crisis? I'm going to say no. Of course, I'm going to say no. And the reason I'm going to say no is because I think on the one hand, short term financially, yes, you know, we'll we'll, we'll take a hit. In the medium term, we don't know what that's going to look like, but we're not, we feel that in the medium term and certainly in the long term, that that will right itself. But the other interesting thing to think about in terms of COVID is that 
people are suddenly very, very, very aware that good medical research can save lives and actually really transition the way we behave in the community. Of course, I'm thinking here about a vaccine for coronavirus. Everybody understands that there are research labs all over the world looking at trying to get a vaccine as fast as possible into the population so that we can all get on with our lives. But that's a great learning for people that research investment, it's not just some sort of, you know, flighty thing that we dream about and it's all smokes and mirrors. It's real investment in real change that protects people. And that's true in breast cancer as well. So um, I think people are starting to really think about medical research in a different way. So once again, there's, a, there's always a positive. There's always a silver lining in there. Tell. I can't help myself. You know? <laughs> Good on you. I suppose the other thing, though, is that there is a level of understanding that all of that research work's being done around COVID. But there's so much other research that's going on around so many other ailments and diseases, including breast cancer. And you announced 16 new projects last week. Yep. What, what ones are you particularly interested in or that you think will, will potentially offer a significant potential breakthroughs? The way we select our projects is that they are all selected by peer review as projects that have the potential to really impact the stats in breast cancer. So I'll argue that all of them can, but it's the diversity of them, I think, that's really Mm. important. You know, we've got one team working on a vaccine that will work alongside immunotherapy in breast cancer to make immunotherapy affected in breast cancer in a way that it's not at the moment. We know that immunotherapy works really well in things like melanoma, but it doesn't work terribly well in breast cancer. But if we could get it to work in breast cancer, then clearly that's a, a huge win. So that's a really exa- a good example and a very relevant with it being a vaccine as well of how the science isn't siloed either. I mean, there's lots of learnings between sciences just as there are between cancers. And that's something that we're very focused on. You know, other examples are, you know, looking at what we can learn through sort of artificial intelligence, looking at, you know, digital mammograms and the way that digital mammograms are read and making sure that the detection rates are really, really high. Know that detection rates are quite variable, but they could be better. So using different screening tools for digital mammograms and even things like looking at breast density impact on mammograms. So we know that people with dense breasts, it's much harder to detect their tumour but they also do a lot less well from treatment. So they've got a double whammy. So it's really important that we understand who those people are and make sure that we're able to detect their cancers early. So it's everything from screening all the way through and the way we screen and interpret data through to developing a new vaccine and you know, other things as well. So it, it's a very, very broad range. And our approach is to try to be you know, open to any kind of research that has the potential to improve the stats in breast cancer. Going back to coronavirus, one of the things, you know, we've had 102 deaths, I think, now in Australia, mm. sadly, from coronavirus. Breast cancer in Australia yields eight deaths a day. Mm. So for breast cancer, that's less than a couple of weeks of work, isn't it? So, <laughs> you know, if you want to see it that way, quite clearly, coronavirus is here to, to create all sorts of havoc worldwide. But breast cancer hasn't gone away and it still needs to be supported and needs to be fixed, as do many other things. Breast cancer is the most diagnosed cancer. It's critical that it's managed well. So how achievable is that goal of zero deaths in a decade? Well, it's definitely an audacious goal and nobody's pretending that it's not. And I think perhaps if we just reflect on where we've come from. So Mm. NBCF started in 1994 
And at that time, five-year survival rate for breast cancer was 76%. It's now 91%. So sort of just over 25 years, it's gone to 91%. So that's a massive change for the better. And it should be driving deaths down, of course. But because incidence is still going up quite rapidly, it's not driving deaths down. So we've got huge volume. Volumes have gone up 38% in 10 years for breast cancer in Australia. And that is why it's the most diagnosed cancer in Australia at this time. So clearly, that change from 76% of the surviving at five years to 91% didn't happen in a vacuum. It happened because of targeted medical research that has improved detection and treatment. And it's really that simple. So we've got 9% to go. So we need to understand what it is about the 9% of people who don't survive to five years. What don't we know about them or what can we learn about them that we can target to make sure that we do our very best to make sure that that's that change. And just to give you a sense of how quickly things are changing, I've been in my role for four years and that percentage has improved by 3% since I've been here. So it's changing and it's still changing. The question is, you know, how fast can we continue to make it change? And if you look at medical technologies, you know, a lot of medical discovery and medical research is driven by the quality of the technology we have to support us. Mm-hmm. The technology in the sector now is absolutely incredible. When you look at things like, you know, the human genome, genomics, proteomics, things like that, we've got such incredible technologies. In terms of how we've applied them in research, we're really still at the beginning of a lot of learning and opportunity that those technologies can give us. And so I think we're going to see very real change and transformation all the way from detection through to treatment and positive outcomes over the next 10 years. Things are definitely going to be far better, I believe. Are we any closer to knowing, in a way, what we can do to diminish the risk and curtail that incidence? There are certain things that we do know, and something like one in four cancers can be avoided by changes in lifestyle. That's all cancers, and breast cancers included. Less alcohol, less fatty foods, less obesity, more regular exercise, etc. If we get the entire population to do a fantastic program of exercise and diet and keep weight under control, we would have something like 20%, 25% fewer cancers in Australia. That on its own is absolutely huge. And it's a wonderful opportunity. It's just a little challenging to persuade millions of people to to go down this path. But it sort of signals that there are things that we know that we can do. And I think even our genetic understanding of who's at risk and risk assessing people better, whether it's through genetics and other things, understanding better what drives their cancer will help us to help them avoid it. There's There's still a lot of learning to come. But certainly we know that, you know, there are things that we can all do now to make our opportunity better. Is there a willingness, 20%, I mean, you might, 3 to 4 5% of the population who are willing to make those kinds of lifestyle changes. Do we actually reach a point where at the end we go, this is a percentage that we're just not going to shake? Do we accept that? Some people, as individuals I'm talking about now, and this, I'm not mm. talking about this from a scientific perspective, but from no. a personal perspective, some people will say to you, you know what, I know that if I went running every morning and I ate an apple a day and I cut out chocolate and did this and did the other, that I would live longer and be less likely to get cancer. But actually, that's not how I want to live my life. And mm. that's my choice. So people mm. do, in a way, I think, 
risk assess themselves and say, yeah, you know, I know I should give up alcohol. I know I shouldn't smoke. I know I shouldn't do this, that and the other. But they're personal choices that people make. So you're always going to have people that, you know, prefer to live their lives a certain way. And I think that in a sense, you have to kind of respect that and say, well, that's your call in an ideal world. Love to be an idealist, but in an ideal world, none of us smoke, none of us drink alcohol ever. We don't eat cakes, we don't eat chocolate, <laughs> we're all slightly <laughs> overweight, <laughs> you know. And this is the holy grail. Unfortunately, I don't think that's going to happen. I'm not sure how it's going for you, Nick. Tell me how you came to be associated with Australian Communities Foundation. What was the incentive for joining? So at the time, I was approached through a headhunter and I was working for a charity in Victoria that worked in the paediatric palliative care space, a charity called Very Special Kids, which is very close to my heart, very special organisation based Mm. in Malvern. So I was approached, which suited me because I just think that the work that they do and the diversity of the work that they do and the impact that they can have on the community is profound. And they mm. continue to prove themselves in a wide range of areas and they're, you know, they're highly relevant, highly topical and highly impactful. So I'm really privileged, I think, to be part of their journey. Your medical background is ophthalmology and optometry. Where did you make the leap into a foundation like breast cancer? Change came when I was living in the UK and I decided it would be a really good idea to build a research academy, a research hospital effectively on the campus of the university that I was working in. This is probably 20 something years ago now. It turned out to be the forbidden fruit, really. I was really fascinated by the whole process of raising funds, building the building, running the business building partnerships and collaborations and really engineering the whole thing, I kind of felt that maybe it was time to do something different than being, you know, at the time I was working as a full-time academic and in an Mm. optometry department, felt it was time. So I was sort of considering what the options might be, and I must admit I wasn't sure. And then the opportunity to move with my family to Australia arose, and we were really keen to try that. So we came over in 2006 to Australia And then it was a kind of bit of an evolution between, you know, went back into optometry and in ophthalmology for a little while in research. The position came up with uh, very special kids and it really spoke to my passions. I've always had an interest in paediatrics, paediatric vision. I'd worked with Save the Children in the past and various other things. So it was a, a real area of passion for me. It was just a natural evolution for me, really. When National Breast Cancer Foundation came up, I'd been considering a relocation for personal reasons. For me, it speaks to my research roots and it's something that I'm I'm passionate about. I have a very strong family history of cancer as well, self-interest there, you know. It just seemed a very natural progression to take that role. So it was just a winding path that was taking me to a certain point, I think. It's fortuitous when the path leads you to ultimately a place that you're happy to reside. I think you have to let yourself do that. Mm. I think you can decide to push one way or another. I was what was affectionately known as a trailing spouse at the time, very much a wife following the husband. So making opportunities in locations not necessarily dictated by me, maybe that made me make decisions earlier than I otherwise would have done in terms of career changes along the way. And that's probably given me quite an eclectic mix of skills and experiences that sit really well under the banner that is NBCF. So it works quite well for me. 
did you feel more comfortable in research than consulting and practising? I was actually comfortable in either, really. I, for me, I didn't want to be a full-time clinician. I really liked a bit of diversity within my weekly routine. And being an academic, I was in education as well as in research. And I was still in clinical practice. I was really fortunate to have quite a mix of things that I was doing at any one time, which I really enjoyed. That's always been the case for me, is really kind of evolving and making sure that it's interesting and it's dynamic and it's new and it's interesting and it's challenging. So COVID's kind of uh, come along to keep me interesting and challenged and <laughs> all of those things. Do you feel that there is a board after a period of time with certain challenges? My desire is to add value. And I really need to, you know, if I get up in the morning, I want to feel as though whatever I'm going to do today is somehow going to add some value to something that I'm working on, whatever it is I'm interested in. So tell me, what's next for you? I mean, you're obviously we're in the midst of what coming out of the pandemic. Do you have any short term priorities that you feel you need to address? I think the key issue in the short term is around what we're terming re-emergence. <laughs> so coming back from under our stone, probably more the what than the when. I'm, I'm actually not that worried about the when. We're working really effectively from home. We've got great technologies and tools to assist us and we seem to be quite effective. It's more in the long term, we know that we want to have office time together because frankly, we like each other and we want to retain a good culture and we feel that it's going to be challenging without that. So that's an objective. We acknowledge that none of us really think going back to five days a week in the office is the right answer. So that's probably not on the cards, and nor is working from home full time. So it's somewhere in the middle. So I'm envisaging, I'll say, 40 to 60 percent work from home, whichever way you want to look at that. But 40 to 60 percent work from home and challenge that you're left with in that is, well, if you're only in the office 40 to 60 percent of the time, do you reduce the size of the office to save cost, which is an option? It's not the option that I favour because if you reduce the size of the office, you're pretty much deciding that you can't ever have your staff all together at once, which is something yes. that we do want. Mm. So my preference is to find a great partner and look at co-location. I'm looking at what the options would be to find a partner who's got similar kind of staff size as us, similar office needs as us, and, you know, we take half the week and they take half the week, there or thereabout. We take it in turns, hot desking mm. with somebody from another organisation. So it's been really interesting discussions. I've had a number of discussions with some CEOs about that and what that might look like. I think, Their thinking uh, is similar to yours? They've all said that it hadn't occurred to them to co-locate. They were actually thinking more along the lines of either a serviced office environment or potentially just reducing the size of the office. But mm. the idea of co-locating and actually having the same if you like, footprint, so that we mm. can, as a team, spend time together. And then it opens up other avenues to say, I wonder what other synergies we can find in terms of shared services and other things. Mm. So it opens a whole new world of opportunity, you know, we can have a look at. And I think the danger at this time is, you know, we've been working from home for 10 weeks. It's all gone swimmingly. Thank you very much. That's great. But that's because we've got a stable workforce. But over time, you know, there will be natural changeover in the staff and so on. How do you maintain that workforce if, you, if you're always working from home? Mm. It would be very easy at this point to throw the baby out with the bathwater and say, well, uh, this works, so we're not going to bother. We'll just get rid of the office and we don't want to do that anymore. I think going with some caution that says, you know, mm, there's definitely some wins to be had here. We just need to be really mindful of what they might look like. Definitely at this point, my preference, if I can find 
an ideal partner who wants the same sort of space as we do in the same sort of locations as we do, I think co-location could be a hit. We'll see. Mm -hmm. Okay, lucky thinking. We might have to go <laughs> down the same path, I suspect. It will inevitably mean that workforce dynamic changes. And I think it opens up a whole big question about, you know, we've, we've all thought a lot about what kind of personality types we need in different areas of our workforce, mm. et cetera. So what kind of personality type do you need if they're working from home all the time? Mm. Are they yeah. the same type of people that work mm. in an office all the time? Mm. Is it introvert versus extrovert? Mm. You know, where do you take all of that? So there are a whole heap of questions about what that can look like. I definitely think for me, for us, I think the hybrid model with a significant increase in working from home, somewhere near 50%, give or take, will be very effective, I believe. That's what we're working towards at the moment. Let's hope we don't get it wrong. Well, look, you know, it's not like that you can't review it and revise it soon afterwards. No. It doesn't have to be cast in stone, does it? I wish you all the best with that, Sarah. Thank you very much. Nice thank to chat to you. I'd like to thank Sarah Hosking for taking part in the Philanthropy Australia podcast, a regular feature of PA's website, for our members and interested public. I'm Nick Richardson. Thanks for listening.